Hi, welcome back to the Illusions Podcast. My name is Greg Lauer, and first and foremost, I want to apologize for being a day or two late with this episode because I lost my voice and only recently regained it. And as you can hear, I'm still not 100%, but I did want to get an episode out. In the last episode, we met our two main characters, uh, the autobiographical Richard, uh, which we are assuming is Richard Buck himself, and then Donald Shimoda, who we are going to know as the reluctant messiah of the title. At the end of chapter two, uh, our two main characters had been doing some barnstorming, they apparently had a really good day as $3 flights for 10 minutes go when you're in the Midwest, uh, going over top of cornfields and small towns. Uh, apparently had a really good day of that, and we're about to settle down for the night. So we'll pick up with Chapter 3. Throngs and masses and crowds of people, torrents of humanity pouring against one man in the middle of them all. Then the people became an ocean that would drown the man, but instead of drowning, he walked over the ocean, whistling, and disappeared. The ocean of water changed to an ocean of grass. A white and gold travel air 4,000 came down to land on the grass, and the pilot got out of the cockpit and put up a cloth sign. Fly! Three dollars! Fly! It was three o'clock in the morning when I woke from the dream. Remembering it all, and for some reason happy for it, I opened my eyes to see in the moonlight that big traveler parked alongside the fleet. Shimoda sat on his bedroll as he had when I first met him, leaning back against the left wheel of his airplane. It wasn't that I saw him clearly, I just knew he was there. Hi, Richard, he said quietly in the dark. Does that tell you what's going on? Does what tell me, I said foggily. I was still remembering and didn't think to be surprised that he'd be awake. Your dream. The guy and the crowds in the airplane, he said patiently. You were curious about me, so now you know, okay? There were news stories. Donald Shimoda, the one they were beginning to call the Mechanic Messiah, the American Avatar, who disappeared one day in front of 25,000 eyewitnesses. I did remember that had read it on a small-town Ohio newspaper rack because it was on the front page. Donald Shimoda? At your service, he said. Now you know, so you don't have to puzzle me out anymore. Go back to sleep. I thought about that for a long time before I slept. And then here, Richard puts a little break in the chapter, which conveniently lets us go back and take a look at a couple of things. Uh, one of the first things that catches my mind is you think when you're first opening the chapter, you think it's Richard describing uh, what had happened with Don Shimoda as part of kind of an eyewitness account rather than a dream. So I love the way Richard turns it around and reveals it as a dream that you can assume Donald has put into his head so that he would kind of remember why they met, or at least remember who Shimoda is, as they begin to understand why they drew each other together. And I love the way Richard says, I was still remembering and didn't think to be surprised that he'd be awake. He's already seen Shimoda do some interesting things. So to be awake at 3 a.m. and already just sitting there quietly uh, should have been surprising. 
There were news stories. They were beginning to call him the mechanic messiah, the American avatar. Disappeared one day in front of 25,000 eyewitnesses. And I wonder if something like that happened today, if we put ourselves in that place and just suddenly decided that we were going to pull ourselves out of a drowning situation and instead of drowning, just walk over the ocean, whistling, and then just disappear. And I love the idea of whistling in the midst of a turmoil or whistling in the dark. We might whistle in the dark to bring ourselves some level of comfort, or we might whistle in the dark to bring someone else some comfort so that we can sort of make it through whatever the dark situation is. And Don Shimoda's case, the dark situation was uh, he was getting crowded and thronged and sort of mobbed by people that wanted him to do their healing and wanted him to live their lives and wanted him to, to learn things for them and then just teach them the lessons and instead of doing the heavy lifting of learning for themselves. Richard, after some amount of time before he gets back to sleep, eventually wakes up and then uh, we start the chapter again with are you allowed? Uh, I didn't think uh, y you get a job like that, the Messiah. You're supposed to save the world, aren't you? I didn't know the Messiah could just turn in his keys like that and quit. I sat on the top cowling of the fleet and considered my strange friend. Toss me a nine-sixteenths, would you please, Don? He hunted in the tool bag and pitched the wrench up to me. As with the other tools that morning, the one he threw slowed and stopped within a foot of me, floating weightless, turning lazy in midair. The moment I touched it, though, it went heavy in my hand, an everyday chrome Vanadian aircraft end wrench. Well, not quite every day. Ever since a cheap seven-eighths broke in my hand, I've bought the best tools a man can have. This one happened to be a snap-on, which, as any mechanic knows, is not your everyday wrench. Might as well be made of gold, the price of the thing, but it's a joy in the hand, and you know it will never break no matter what you do with it. So then Don Shimoda answers, of course you can quit. Quit anything you want if you change your mind about doing it. You can quit breathing if you want to. He floated a Phillips screwdriver for his own amusement. So I quit being the messiah, and if I sound a little defensive... It's maybe because I'm still a little defensive. Better than keeping the job and hating it, a good messiah hates nothing and is free to walk any path he wants to walk. Well, that's true for everybody, of course. We're all the sons of God or children of the is or ideas of the mind or however else you want to say it. And let me stop right there because there's two things in here I highlighted and I've highlighted these repeatedly in every copy of this book that I've gotten. The first is, of course you can quit. Quit anything you want if you change your mind about doing it. You can quit breathing if you want to. And on the surface, that sounds ridiculous. But, you know, to a degree, if you decide with your current awareness and your current consciousness that you don't feel like living anymore or you don't feel like breathing anymore, you can just stop. Or if you look at it with a different mindset, uh, you know, how often did we hold our breath as kids? We might have been holding our breath just for fun or to see who could hold it the longest or something like that. But we quit breathing because we wanted to. 
We don't necessarily think of it that way when we read this passage. And there is the bigger picture I'm sure Don Shimoda was getting at. It is true. We can quit breathing if we want to. You can hold your breath and go underwater for a few seconds. Or you, you know, there are pearl divers who are trained to hold their breath for minutes at a time. They quit breathing if they want to. When we hit these, the reason I wanted to bring this up is when we hit these statements that on the surface seem kind of silly, that is actually the best time to stop and put down the book and take a little while to ask yourself, how am I reading that quest, that statement or how am I understanding that statement? How am I understanding the question the character just asked? Or how am I understanding what the character just said? Because there will almost always be a very, very superficial, very, very surface level way to read the statement or answer the question. But Richard Bach is almost always going for deeper and deeper layers of meaning. And at the very least, you can kind of twist your perspective just a little bit and see where the statement might have been true or might be true for you today. Now, for example, the whole quit breathing if you want to situation, uh, on the surface, superficially, seems almost ridiculous. But, like I just gave in, in those few examples, that could easily be one layer of meaning that Richard Bach had in mind when he wrote that. Although, uh, as we learn later, he is beginning to hint at much, much deeper ideas and much deeper thoughts and philosophies. So going on to the second highlighted section, a good Messiah hates nothing and is free to walk any path he wants to walk. And I think that's true for all of us. Don Shimoda has already said, this doesn't have to be limited to your concept of the Messiah. These ideas apply to you and they apply to me and they apply to all of us. And then if we remember what the word Messiah truly means, chosen by God, anointed of God, if we kind of unravel some of the normal Western Judeo-Christian stuff we have been taught over the years, what we might see that we are all children of the sons of God or children of the is or ideas of the mind or however else you wanted to say it, you know, like Don Shimoda has said, we might come to realize that we're all children of God. We're all creations of an infinite is, an infinite I am. And that means we have all then been created for a reason or anointed for a purpose. And since we are chosen by God and anointed by God, the word Messiah, the word Messiah applies to us just as well as it did to anybody else. Uh, and I am not saying that to be a heretic or to anger any of my Christian brothers and sisters. I'm just pointing out, if we look at the way the word was originally intended, the word Mashiach was originally intended thousands of years ago in the Hebrew context, we are all messiahs in a way. So then going back to the, to the book, I worked at tightening the cylinder base nuts on the Kinner engine. A good power plant, the old B5, but these nuts want to loosen themselves every hundred flying hours or so, and it's wise to stay one jump ahead. Sure enough, the first one I put the wrench to went a quarter turn tighter, and I was glad for my wisdom to check them all this morning before flying any more customers. So then Richard goes back to his questioning. 
Well, yes, Don, but it seems as if Messiah-ing would be different from other jobs, you know? Jesus going back to hammering nails for a living? Maybe it just sounds odd. He considered that, trying to see my point. I don't see your point. Strange thing about that is he didn't quit when they first started calling him Savior. Instead, at that piece of bad news, he tried logic. Okay, I'm the Son of God, but so are we all. I'm the Savior, but so are you. The works that I do, you can do. Anybody in their right mind understands that. And I love, and I'm going to take another break there, because I love the way Don Shimoda puts that. If you read through the gospel accounts in the Bible, and, and if you got the red letter versions, it makes it a little easier to find the parts that uh, we believe Jesus said, that, that those things were recorded uh, as Jesus spoke them. Not at the same time, but the way that he spoke them. They were recorded by disciples later, and those things had been passed down and captured from person to person to person until they were finally captured on paper. Um, and this is not the forum for a dispute on how accurately they were captured, but the red-letter versions have successfully survived through 2,000 years. Uh, granted, the red-letter part was only put in in the last probably 50 years or so, but the words of Jesus were captured and have remained largely unchanged on paper for a little over 1,800 years. So, uh, and in some cases, a little over 1,900 years. So I think we can look at them pretty reliably. And there are places where Jesus said, you know, you look at, and obviously this is paraphrasing, but Jesus said, you see the miracles I'm doing. I can tell you verily, verily, which means truthfully, truthfully and him saying truthfully truthfully emphasized that point even more it's kind of like putting an underline and an exclamation point on it when jesus said verily verily what he was saying was you see the miracles i'm doing well i, I tell you you're going to be doing even more you're going to do bigger miracles and more miracles than i ever did and yes, his miracles were amazing, and they were confirmation of who he said he was. But he's telling us, if we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Son of God, come from heaven to earth to redeem redeem of sins and, and, and was fully man and fully divine, and he's telling us, and he's only capable of speaking truth, and Jesus told us we could do the same miracles and better and more. Who are we to put limits on ourselves that say we can't? Uh, and yes, that all came from my my typical Judeo-Christian upbringing, but let's say you're a believer in the Buddha, and the Buddha has said, nothing around you has any meaning except the meaning you give to it, and everything around you is a product of your mind. So that leads, if you follow the logic, that leads to the conclusion that you are capable of working miracles. And that's one reason I absolutely love this book. Because it reminds us of things we probably already knew back in the day, such as the idea that we are capable of working miracles for ourselves and for others. And as Jesus himself said, we're capable of doing way more than he could do. 
But we have to believe that. We have to believe that's going to be to be true for it to be true. Uh, so going back to the text, it was hot up on the cowling, but it didn't feel like work. The more I want to get something done, the less I call it work. Satisfying to know that I was keeping the cylinders from flying off the engine. Say, you want another wrench, he said. I do not want another wrench, and I happen to be so spiritually advanced that I consider these tricks of yours mere party games, Shimoda, of a moderately evolved soul, or maybe a beginning hypnotist. A hypnotist? Boy, are you ever getting warm. But better hypnotist than Messiah. What a dull job. Why didn't I know it was going to be a dull job? Let me stop there real quick. Why didn't I know it was going to be a dull job? Don Shimoda has already made reference a couple of times to the idea that we will kind of know what we're bringing into our lives because we're drawing it there for a reason. So at some point, he didn't even realize that being a messiah was going to be a dull job. And that idea that it might be a dull job, uh, that seems kind of crazy, again, on the surface. That seems like kind of a crazy idea because, at least to me, and I'm sure I'm not alone, but at least to me it seems like working miracles, healing people, doing all sorts of other miracles might be pretty exciting. But like Don Shimoda has mentioned and gone through and talked about numerous times, it's not really exciting when people are crushing around you trying to get you to do their thinking and trying to get you to do their healing and to do everything else for them. That's really not that exciting. And probably puts a little too much pressure on a person. And maybe it's just because he did it over and over and over, and it got to be the same thing every day because everywhere he went, people were crowding around him. That that took the pleasure out of living the way he was living, and took the pleasure out of living with the awareness and the consciousness that he had. A hypnotist, boy, are you ever getting warm. But better hypnotist than Messiah, what a dull job. Why didn't I know it was going to be a dull job? You did, I said wisely. He just laughed. Did you ever consider, Don, that it might not be so easy to quit after all? That you might not just settle right down to the life of a normal human being? He didn't laugh at that. You're right, of course, he said, and ran his fingers through his black hair. Stay in any one place too long, more than a day or two, and people knew I was something strange. Brush against my sleeve, you're healed of terminal cancer. And before the week's out, there I'm back in the middle of a crowd again. This airplane keeps me moving, and nobody knows where I came from or where I'm going next, which suits me pretty well. You are going to have a tougher time than you think, Don. Oh? Yeah. The whole motion of our time is from material toward the spiritual. Slow as it is, it's still a pretty huge motion. I don't think the world is going to let you alone. It's not me they want. It's the miracles. And those I can teach to somebody else. Let him be the Messiah. I won't tell him it's a dull job. And besides... Quote, there is no problem so big that it cannot be run away from. End quote. 
and slid from the cowling down to the hay and began tightening the cylinder nuts on number three and four cylinders. Not all of them were loose, but some were. You are quoting Snoopy the dog, I believe. And Don says, I'll quote the truth wherever I find it, thank you. Yeah, I want to go ahead and stop there again, because number one, I like that. Even though it's supposedly a piece of wisdom from Snoopy, there is a little bit of uh, a little bit of wisdom and a tiny bit of sadness for me in the idea that there is no problem so big that it cannot be run away from. Now, because our own experience teaches us that we really can't run away from our problems. We think we can, but they eventually come back to us. They will eventually find us and come home to roost. So there's probably people that know how to run away from their problems successfully, but I'm willing to bet even if they do run away from their problems today, at some point, if not the exact same problems, at least very similar problems are going to visit them again. And the reason I say that is because I see problems, and I'm not going to go with that old trite thing of, well, see problems as challenges to overcome. I see problems not that way. I see problems as training, training grounds for my future endeavors. I see problems as a way to train myself to think differently or to think bigger or to think more strongly or even just to think more creatively as I think about different solutions to the problems. And one of the things that I've learned over the years, and I used to say this to my kids all the time, is the lesson will continue until the lesson is learned. And I used to tell them that in the context of whatever problems they were talking about. And they kept saying, well, we don't know what to do about this, Dad. How can we get away from this? And I would tell them, you can't. You can't escape it because the lesson will continue until you learn the lesson. And then once you learn the lesson, you can move on. And the next time the the same or a similar challenge happens, you already know what to do about it. So you move right on through. But there again, I'm faced with the idea that Richard Bach pretty rarely includes things in this book that don't have a specific lesson to teach or a specific meaning or a lot of rich wisdom included. So that even if we're quoting Snoopy, the comic strip dog, as there is no problem so big that it cannot be run away from, and then Don Shimoda says, I'll, tr- I'll quote the truth wherever I find it, thank you. If we take a little pause and do like I said earlier, take a little pause and ask, okay, why is it that, that this character said this? How am I understanding this? Is there a different way to see that? And if we see it in the context of everything else that Don Shimoda is talking about, Richard Bach and through the character of Don Shimoda could be alluding to the idea that just as he quit being the Messiah, just up and walked away and and quit doing whatever he wanted, just as he said we could quit breathing if we want to, Maybe he's trying to suggest that we can quit the problems. We can walk away from the problems. We can quit them. Maybe he's trying to say if we put those problems completely outside of our consciousness and don't let them back in our consciousness, that that's kind of like running away from the problem. It's kind of like escaping the problem. But maybe it's just a way of avoiding having the problem in the first place. 
So that's another one of those cases where it's worth sitting back and taking a little time to sort of explore what's going on with the idea and explore what's going on with what the character has just said. Because there is a lot of potential within that statement. So then I'll pick up here again. You can't run away, Don. What if I start worshipping you right now? What if I get tired of working on my engine and start begging you to heal it for me? Look, I'll give you every dime I make from now to sundown if you just teach me how to float in the air. If you don't do it, then I'll know that I'm supposed to start praying to you, Holy One sent to lift my burden. He just smiled at me. I still don't think he understood that he couldn't run away. How could I know that when he didn't? Did you have the whole show like you see in the movies from India? Crowds in the streets, billions of hands touching you, flowers and incense, golden platforms with silver tapestries for you to stand on when you spoke? No, even before I asked for the job, I knew I couldn't stand that. So I chose the United States, and I just got the crowds. It was pain for him remembering, and I was sorry I brought the whole thing up. He sat in the hay and talked on looking through me. I wanted to say, for the love of God, if you want freedom and joy so much, can't you see it's not anywhere outside of you? Say you have it, and you have it. Act as if it's yours, and it is. Let me go ahead and pause there again. Let's let that sink in. In fact, I'm just going to read it again. Because I think that is actually the central theme of this entire book. It's the central message, the central teaching of this entire book. And all the rest of the book is just teaching that same idea from a slightly different angle, a little bit different perspective, or using different words so that the idea sinks in a little bit better. So let me read that one more time. For the love of God, if you want freedom and joy so much, can't you see it's not anywhere outside of you? Say you have it, and you have it. Act as if it's yours, and it is. So my friends, if, if we want freedom and joy, let's just try and experiment. After you listen to this episode, let's try and experiment for the next several days where we just say to ourselves that we are joyful. And we say to ourselves that we have freedom. That we say to ourselves that we have those things. And let's begin to notice that the more we say them, the more we recognize those things within ourselves. And then let's act as if we do have joy. If you don't know what it means to act as if you're having joy, just think about, for you, what that might feel like. You know, what would it feel like if I was joyful? And yes, I know that's kind of a dumb question on the surface because we just said you may not know what that feels like. But you get to decide. You get to choose what joy feels like for you. You get to choose how you react and how you respond when you are living in joy in this moment. Let's just try a little experiment for the next few days. And let's just say that we have freedom and say that we have joy. And then realize that we have them. Let's act as if we have freedom and act as if we have joy. And then take a second every so often to think about what we're feeling and to notice what we're feeling and, and to notice the joy we feel and to notice the freedom we feel. So picking up with Don Shimoda again, and I'm going to read that passage one more time because I love it. 
For the love of God, if you want freedom and joy so much, can't you see it's not anywhere outside of you? Say you have it, and you have it. Act as if it's yours, and it is. Richard, what is so damned hard about that? But they didn't even hear most of them. Miracles, like going to auto races to see the crashes, they, they came to me to see miracles. First it's frustrating, and then after a while it just gets dull. I have no idea how the other messiahs could stand it. Well, you put it that way, it, it does lose some of the charm, I said. I tightened the last nut and put the tools away. Where are we headed today? He walked to my cockpit, and instead of wiping the bugs off my windshield, he passed his hand over it, and the smashed little creatures came alive and flew away. His own windshield never needed a cleaning, of course, and now I knew his engine would never need any maintenance either. I don't know, he said. I don't know where we're headed. What do you mean? You know the past and the future of all things. You know exactly where we're going. He sighed. Yeah, but I try not to think about it. As a little aside, we don't realize it yet if this is your first time reading or hearing this book. You don't realize it yet, but kind of like early, early in the book when there was the mention of a horrible death for the Messiah as a way to free the reluctant Messiah for the next lifetime or the next journey. This is, we don't realize it yet if it's your first time reading, because it's so early in the book, but when Don Shimoda sighs and says, yeah, but I try not to think about that, it's because he already knows the destiny that he has chosen for this lifetime to include the end of it. And the end of it is not something that anybody would be real pleased about, but he has chosen it for some reason. Uh, so then going back to the book, for a while... As I was working on the cylinders, I got to thinking, wow, all I have to do is stay with this guy and there will be no problems. Nothing bad will happen and everything will turn out fine. But the way he said that, I try not to think about it. But the way he said that, I try not to think about it, made me remember what had happened to the other messiahs sent into this world. Common sense shouted at me to turn south after takeoff and get as far away from the man as I could get. But as I said, it gets lonely flying this way alone, and I was glad to find him just to have somebody to talk with who knew an aileron from a vertical stabilizer. I should have turned south, but after takeoff I stayed with him, and we flew north and east into that future that he tried not to think about. And that is the end of chapter 3, my friends. So, again, some interesting, I love the way Richard Bach does this because he always includes some interesting prefigures of what's to come in later chapters. And he does it in such a way that it really does not stand out as a prefiguring of what's going to happen way down the line in the book. It seems like something you just want to stick into the back of your mind and, and kind of hold on to for later. Almost like a little promise that he's going to keep later. So you just kind of hold on to that. So there you have it, my friends. Chapter 3, some interesting wisdom for us. Especially the idea that just say that it's yours, and it is. Act as if it's yours, and it is. So let's again go out and be joyful. Let's again go out and be free. Let's live within our joy. Let's live within our freedom. And until next time, my friends. Please know that somebody out there loves you just the way you are. And until next time.